Forward Guidance is brought to you by Vanek, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about Vanek ETFs later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Forward Marginal Guidance. This is the mashup of me and my colleague Jack Farley, and today um, we're doing a post-FOMC recap with Joseph Wang, aka Fed Guy. Guys, welcome. Great to be here. Great to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Joseph, maybe we can just start at a really high level. We're recording this at you know 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. We literally just uh, signed off the live telecast of the FOMC. Would love to just get your high-level takes um, to start. So I think of this as a pretty hawkish Fed conference, and you can see this in the asset pricing as well. Since the, crisis, since the uh, conference started, you can see yields went up a bit and the equity market sold off. I think this was hawkish in a couple ways. Uh, first, I think it's important to have a level set as to what expectations were. So since the December quote-unquote uh, Fed pivot, you'd have markets pricing increasingly aggressive paths of rate cuts. I think heading into the meeting, you were at, let's say, five to six cuts uh, in the next 12 months. Now, the first cut was priced in, let's say, about 50% being this coming March. Uh, the first point of this meeting being hawkish, in my view, was that Chair Powell categorically took March off. He basically strongly suggested that he wasn't going to cut rates uh, in March. Now, the going theme in this conference is, why aren't you cutting? So uh, if you look at the GDP data, you can see that over the past six months, we'd have GDP growth that was solid above trend, unemployment remaining low, but most importantly, you have core PCE uh, basically being on the Fed's target for the past six months. So by all appearances, the Fed has achieved its goal. It has softly landed the economy, inflation back to target, and the economy continues to do well. And of course, many people, many Fed speakers have recently been talking about, um, you know, we got to cut rates a little bit because we want to make sure uh, that we don't over tighten. We're looking at the economy through the lens of real interest rates. Now, Chair Powell seems to be holding the line today and saying that, yeah, we've got good data, but I want more good data. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know. Six months is not enough. Is seven months going to be enough? Apparently not, because he takes he's taking March off the table. Maybe he needs to ha have eight months. I don't know. But I'm getting the sense that uh, he is uh, putting his foot down and he wants to see more data. Now, I don't actually think this is going to impact the market all that much. Uh, the market is simply just going to uh, price rate cuts of, out by by a couple week by a couple months. So I don't really think it's going to be that big of a deal. Uh, but he, he does seem to be dragging his his feet a little bit. Uh, so that's one point on the rate cut path. Now the other part that made this, in my view, a pretty hawkish um, conference was the view on quantitative tightening. So over the past few months, we've had a lot of discussion on QT. In the Fed minutes, it was revealed that the Fed was thinking about tapering QT. Now, that's kick-started a whole bunch of uh, speeches from Fed speakers. We had one person saying that, you know, I think that we should do, uh, we should taper QT when the RRP gets to a very low level. Now, if you look at the RRP, it's been going basically straight down since $2 trillion. Right now, it's about six uh, $600 billion. And so I think that stirred up the imagination of many people on Wall Street that maybe the Fed would kick-start the QT taper as soon as March. Now, that's one school of thought. If you look at other Fed speakers, though, they, they, are, they have different views. Um, they would imply a later QT taper. But 
overall, it was kind of a mixed bag. But because you had some people thinking that uh, the Fed could taper very quickly, I think that was part of the expectation in the market. Now, Chair Powell today said that, you know, I, we really haven't, we talked about QT maybe a little bit, but we're really going to talk a lot about it um, in, in March. And so I think that pushes forward the process a little bit. So a QT taper, should it happen, uh, I think it's going to be a bit later than, than some people expected. So I think that was a little bit hawkish as well. Um, but all in all, I thought it was a pretty good meeting. We got a lot of good information from the Fed, and he's really, I think, teeing up um, a lot of excitement for what comes in March. In March, we're going to have a new dot plot, and we're going to have a lot of discussion on QT. So it's going to be an opportunity for people on the FOMC to potentially guide towards more than three cuts uh, this year. So last time in December, FOMC participants guided through three cuts this year. But as Chair Powell also acknowledged, inflation has been coming down faster than expected. So uh, I'm thinking that that would be an opportunity for, for that to show up in the dot plot. And we'll get to hear more about what QT looks like uh, going forward. What did Jay Powell say that you think took the March cut off the table? I mean, he, he said a lot of things. He made the symbolic move of basically taking further rate hikes off the table, which everyone pretty much already knew, but it is a, a symbolic uh, uh, move. But later on in the in the interview, a journalist said, so you basically just took March cuts off the table and Jay Powell didn't do anything to disagree with that journalist. But what, you know, was there any uh, uh, point in the interview or several things that Jay Powell said that uh, uh, indicated, oh, March is off the table? Because looking at previous times that the Federal Reserve cut for the first time, it's not like the meeting before that they're saying, we're going to cut. Like they typically like to play, you know, have their, their you know, cards pretty close to the vest. Yeah, you're exactly right. So that's why this move I thought was pretty direct. You had Chair Powell basically say it. It's in his view, it was it was you know not likely that they would they would cut in March. That was uh, as explicit as a central banker could be. And like you know, Jack, usually they're not like this. So this is this is pretty noteworthy, and I think it's a explicit pushback against a lot of the speculation in the market. So I think that was a pretty clear signal. Um, so that just means that maybe we'll cut in May. <laughs> yeah, but I think there's no there's no question that we are on the cusp uh, of a uh, on a rate cutting cycle. Now, how deep and how fast is going to do have a lot to do with um, the data. So we have inflation data that that's really good. So mm. we're already core PC at two percent. Now, one thing that I would note is that. I think going forward, there's going to be increasing sensitivity on the employment data as well. So this Friday could be also be very important. If uh, we have deterioration in, on, in the employment data, uh, then we're going to have rapid cuts and uh, maybe deeper than expected. So that's, that's kind of in the market pricing a little bit, but that's also something to keep, keep note of going forward. Now, to be clear, labor market still looks fine, uh, but... At the end of the day, you can't just keep adding, let's say, 150, 200,000 in jobs every month. Eventually, you'll run out of people. And I think the market would look at those slower growth numbers and uh, think of it as, as a deterioration. Joseph, zooming out for a second, what do you think is in the driver's seat as it pertains to asset markets at the current time? So we just talked about the labor market as a critical dynamic. Obviously, there's an enormous amount uh, of speculation around rate cuts, how many rate cuts are there going to be? When are they ultimately going to happen? And I'm sure that's being priced in. And there's sort of this combination of maybe we could call it 
you know, the amount of duration that the private sector is going to have to absorb through the combination of QT and the QRA, which we also got the QRA, um, which we can talk about today. But, you know, what, obviously, each one of those things is probably a factor. But what do you think is ultimately driving asset prices in the current moment? So at a high level, I think the biggest driver of asset prices is just a tremendous amount of deficit spending that the that we're doing in, as a country. So as we all know, the deficit is very large for a peacetime economy. We are we're doing, let's say, 7% of a fiscal deficit. I think that's really positive for asset pricing because asset prices, because I look at it as basically buying goods and services by printing treasury securities. In a sense, it's a form of money printing. Now, treasury securities, not particular, not exactly the same as cash, um, but when you have stability in the treasury market and when you have the Fed uh, cutting rates and when you have, I guess, positive sentiment towards uh, towards bonds, uh, those those uh, treasuries become pretty money-like. And so, in a sense, if you would have a lot of, uh, let's say, $2 trillion in helicopter money a year being printed, I would think that's obviously positive for, for asset prices. Now, there's a lot of other things going on as well. Uh, I'm sure we all know there's a lot of um, excitement in, in technology and uh, maybe in uh, crypto as well. So, uh, there is a positive resentment. There's a lot of moving pieces, but I think the big overarching thing that I focus on uh, looking back the couple of years and the next few years is just a tremendous amount of deficit spending uh, that's going to, uh, I think, keep nominal growth fairly high and assets are nominally priced. And that informs your view, Joseph, of uh, that stocks will crush bonds, which you said in early January. And I'm looking year to date, Stocks, S&P, S&P is up like three and a half percent and the bond market, TLT, down, you know, a little over three percent. So, so far it's working. Yeah, no, I, I think we're in a bull market in stocks. I mean, we're making new highs. Uh, so today, of course, we took a pullback. It, it, nothing goes up in a straight line. But uh, from my view, we are in a bull market. So, Joseph, what is your outlook on rates? So if in the dot plot that the Fed released showed that it thought that there would be three rate cuts... Uh, the market was pricing in five or six, and I believe there are eight Fed FOMC meetings where a, a 25 basis point cut uh, could occur. So pricing six meetings in, uh, pricing six cuts means that you think that it'll do in May and and hike, ev- excuse me, cut every single time from May. So seven would be if it started in um, in in March. So you know some people's base case I could say is start in May and do a 25 basis point cut every every time so that would be six cuts where 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 are you in this camp so i think that's actually a reasonable trajectory based on uh, just the path of inflation for the past few months now i think that this is so this is going to be a very volatile situation uh, but i think that there's enough uncertainty well fun i think there's enough progress on inflation and there's enough uncertainty on the economic outlook that it won't have be subject to a strong pushback by, by Fed speakers. So I think that's a reasonable path, having, let's say, five to six cuts this year. Um, so yeah. if you look at where inflation is, and of course, that's a, that, that we're already basically back to 2% looking at the past six months. So it doesn't seem unreasonable. Why, why, why are rates at 5%? It doesn't make sense. Now, there is, of course, an argument that inflation could reaccelerate later on in the year. And so that would dampen the need to cut rates. And I, 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 I lean towards that as well. I think that inflation is going to reaccelerate uh, later on in the year, simply because a lot of the disinflation that we've seen has to do with improvements in supply, uh, 
be it increased immigration or higher labor force participation, putting downward pressure on wages, or improvements in supply chain, putting downward pressure on, uh, you know, let's say goods uh, pricing. So those things are, are probably transitory. Um, so I think that we could see inflation reaccelerate later on in the year, but that's something that, that we, we have to think about a, a few months from now. Uh, for now, I think the path of policy, given what we know is, uh, is reasonable. And do you think that that is why Federal Reserve and Chair Powell aren't going to uh, hike a cut in March because they fear resurgent inflation? I think that's a good, that's a good, uh, that, that's a good reason. So, uh, Chair Powell over the past year has always been a believer of having to have weakness in the labor market, uh, maybe cause a little bit of a recession to be able to get inflation under control. Again, we got inflation. Many people thought that as well. It wasn't just him. And if you look at standard economic theory, uh, you know, you do some Phillips curve type analysis. Yeah, we got to get unemployment higher to get inflation lower. So many people believe that, but that just wasn't true. We have uh, a <laughs> quote unquote soft landing. So to some extent, I think in their heart of hearts, they're, they're still a bit skeptical as to what they've seen. And they should, and in my view, rightly so, because a lot of it has been just one-time increases in supply. So I agree with you, Jack. I think that he just, you know, in his heart of hearts, thinks that we should still have some economic weakness to be able to get inflation under control. And he uh, he's skeptical of what he's seen so far, so he wants to have more data. Mm-hmm. Joseph, what is the reason... You know, I, probably the reason why Chair Powell is concerned about that is because of the historic trend. Again, really two periods of time in the last century in the U.S., 40s and the 70s. But each one, each time that we've had an outbreak of inflation, there's been this stop-start sort of pattern. And, you know, I know I, I, uh, I'll plug your Markets Weekly, um, you know, YouTube that you do, which is great. But you had a great uh, uh, phrase in there that stuck with me that, you know, these these, this isn't physics, you know, there are regimes and markets and they change. And so I would be curious, you know, from your standpoint, when you look back at the forties and the seventies, you see this pattern of stop starting, you know, it, what was the reason back then? Do you think it still applies? I, I know you're in the belief that, you know, post 2009, after the great financial crisis, we're in this new regime, but yeah, I would love to just get like any historical context that you have on why inflation tends to manifest in this way and like how you would underwrite the risk of of that happening here. So Mike, as you rightly note, the last inflation episode we have in the 1970s and 80s, uh, you know, you look at it, it looks like a camel hump, right? So inflation went up and then went down. And as everyone was thinking that inflation was over, it went right back up, right? So mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of people looking at what we see today and wondering, maybe we would have a replay of the 1970s and 80s, where just as inflation we thought inflation was under control, it went back up. And I'm sure Chair Powell is deathly afraid of that. So at a high level, I think of markets and economics as downstream from politics. This is because the most influential actors that affect the economy and markets is the government. Uh, You can think of it as the Fed toggling interest rates, or you can think of Congress as deciding to uh, spend or tax. As we all know, Congress can give a lot of people a lot of free money, and that has big uh, economic implications. So in thinking about the 1970s and 80s, then I think it's important to think about the culture back then. In the 1970s and 80s, if you listen to uh, former Fed Chair Arthur Burns, he would tell you that, uh, you know, I could have hiked interest rates really high, I could have caused the Great Depression, and I could have solved inflation uh, basically overnight. 
but I couldn't. I couldn't because the Fed and the political environment was such that it was very much pro-worker. It was very much um, trying to, uh, I guess, the fiscal authorities were running inflationary fiscal policy. Everyone wanted to have uh, a bigger piece of uh, prosperity. And so he felt constrained in its ability to, to uh, push monetary policy to very restrictive levels, cause a recession, and get inflation under control. So it was really the political constraints uh, that, that, that bound the Fed back then. Uh, looking to the political culture today, my interpretation is that in some ways, it is similar to that time. Uh, it, it's uh, becoming more populist, so to speak. Uh, the way that you can see this in the Fed, the Fed's case specifically, is to look at the new appointments on the Fed. So over the past few years, we've had a number of new Fed governors. If you look at their backgrounds, you can see that almost none of them uh, have backgrounds in monetary policy or even macroeconomics. Their background is in labor economics. So that sends a signal that going forward, the Fed maybe is going to be, uh, when they think about the trade-off between inflation and unemployment, it's going to be more heavily tilted towards unemployment. That, again, is a recipe for structurally higher inflation. Um, and, of course, if you look and listen to Tune in the News today, you, you can see a couple of senators sending angry letters to Chair Powell asking him to cut rates, right? So, you know, this is what you would see when you you're moving towards a culture uh, where the Fed is going to feel more constrained. So uh, I think there's a very good chance that we could have, uh, to some extent, uh, a resurgence of inflation simply because the Fed doesn't have the same uh, political and cultural support as it did before. People, I think, broadly would be willing to tolerate higher inflation if it meant that they could keep their job. Right. And so a lot of the new folks on the Federal Reserve have that labor economist background, not in uh, monetary policy. And so they would be inclined to more dovish policy. But the Federal Reserve is not a democracy. And the chair, Jay Powell, what he thinks uh, uh, you know, matters the most. So do you, do you think that this will kind of be Powell's last stand to be hawkish is to choose the time at which the rate cutting cycle begins because again going back to the your excellent point joseph that mike brought up from your youtube channel which, which people should check out that uh, you know finance is, is not physics there's no set rules likewise fed cutting cycles are not set rules yes you know it's helpful to look back and see what people did in the past but the last two cutting cycles uh well in in 2008 and in uh 2000 you know 2020 uh, uh and 2019 not notwithstanding i think they, they started with a shot across about 50 basis points and then you know, 50 here, 25, 20, 50, it was a little irregular. And when I look at what Powell's doing now, like the Federal Reserve with the era of forward guidance, they like to really stick to their script and make sure like, okay, you know, the song is playing in 4-4 four, four, and the snare drum comes in on three, the drum comes on, on four. And so, so market participants, you know, are not surprised. So that inclines me to believe and, you know, the market uh, participants to believe if you look at the forward curve, that once the Fed starts with a cut, whether it is in March or May, that it will be followed by another 25 basis point cut and then another until the, the cutting cycle begins. So do you think, Joseph, that the, the Fed policy is kind of like a steamship that it takes a really long term turn to like turn around policy? And the, uh, that's where we are right now, that turning point. But once it's going in a direction, you know, it's not it's I, you know, in other words, it's very unlikely that uh, the Fed will cut in May and then hike in June. Like it likes to be, you know, going in, a, in one direction. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it would be very humiliating if the Fed 
cut rates in March, only to have to raise them again in June. So that might be part of the reason that uh, Jer Powell wants to be extra cautious when he's starting this cutting cycle. And we all know that once he starts cutting, the market is going to uh, let their imagination run wild and they're going to price in increasingly more and more cuts. So I think there's going to be some nonlinear impact to once the rate cut cycle uh, begins. So historically speaking, and I see this a lot, is that people see that when the Fed cuts, they tend to cut a lot. But I think it's really important to realize, like you mentioned, Jack, this is not physics. Every time is different. Context matters. Now, in the past, if you have, let's say, a financial crisis or let's say you have uh, excitement around the pandemic, obviously, uh, when the Fed cuts, they're going to cut big. But today, though, the context is that the Fed is cutting because inflation is declining. And so that would merit a more methodological slower cut. So uh, that's something to keep in mind as well and something that Governor Waller mentioned in his recent speech. Like gold did, Bitcoin is establishing itself as a macro asset that potentially helps hedge against the government devaluation of your money. Finally, you can easily access Bitcoin in a low-cost ETF with the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Search the ticker HODL in your brokerage app today. Visit vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash hodlfg. Now the disclosures. Investing involves risk and you could lose money on an investment in the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, also known as the Trust or HODL. The value of Bitcoin and therefore the value of the trust shares could decline rapidly, including to zero. You could lose your entire principal investment. For a more complete discussion of the risk factors relative to the trust, carefully read the prospectus link below. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Switching tax here for a second, Joseph, I would love to get an understanding from you if fiscal policy and these deficits that we're running is really still in the driver's seat here. And presumably that's what's behind these, you know, sort of blockbuster GDP numbers that we keep getting. What is the actual transmission uh, like mechanism of transmission to get that money into the economy? I think I understand it at a high level. Congress decides to spend the money gets, you know, the Fed issues a bunch of treasuries, uh, the treasury then decides what the tenor is, and then that gets sold into the market. But how does how do those funds actually find their way into the economy? And then how does that ultimately end up leading to uh, higher asset prices? Uh, is it just there's more money going around, so it's easier for businesses, like one person's cost is another person's income type thing? Or what is the actual transmission mechanism look like? Yeah, so I think of it as just money printing. So um, let's 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 do a let's do an example here. Let's say that uh, you, uh, Mike, are an investor, and uh, Jack, you're a you're a military contractor. Okay, so I want to buy missiles from Jack. So what happens? So I give money. So first of all, I borrow the money. So uh, Mike, you give me a hundred dollars. I give you a hundred dollars in Treasury securities, right? I take the hundred dollars that you give me and I give it to Jack and Jack gives me a big missile. So at the end of the day, how did, how does this look from, from a macro standpoint? Well, Jack has a hundred dollars more in cash, right? He didn't have that before and he can do the, you know, do what he wants with it. What about you? You had a hundred dollars, but in, in its place, you don't have that anymore. You have a hundred dollars in treasury securities. Now I would, I would make the suggestion that your position really hasn't changed. Instead of having $100 sitting in your bank account, you now have $100 in treasuries, maybe earning a little bit of interest. But at the end of the day, your purchasing power, the amount of money you hold, quote unquote, hasn't changed, but the amount of money that Jack holds has increased, right? So as from a macro level, um, Jack has more purchasing power. And that then can be used in all, all sorts of ways. You can use it to buy uh, goods and services, driving up uh, the price of inf- 
goods and services, CPI inflation, or he can use it to go and uh, buy financial assets. Now, from a macro standpoint, what I notice is that so there's a lot of um, unevenness in the distribution of income and wealth such that when you put money into the system, ultimately it funnels up to corporations or very wealthy entities that then go and buy financial assets. And so when you're pumping tremendous amounts of money into the financial system through fiscal spending, ultimately at the end of the day, as it cycles around, it gets uh, dumped into financial assets. And so uh, that's a core driver behind my thesis as to why I think the stock market is going to go higher, but uh, that's how I think of it from a, how, how it flows. Joseph, in that scenario, I'm the military contractor, you're the government. Mike is the entity that is financing the government by buying treasury bills, but that yep. can really be uh, three entities, you know, traditionally two, but maybe, maybe three, one uh, corporate, basically uh, savings. It's coming from money that already exists. Number two, it's bank credit. Like banks are just, uh, issuing deposit liabilities to buy that, and three is the Federal Reserve. Uh, in in what which of those three scenarios are the most stimulative to asset markets and or the economy, and which are um, uh, 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 the least, and which is going on right now where the Federal Reserve is reducing, you know, its balance sheet via, via quantitative tightening, but that may end soon. I would make this argument. So, if I give you a Treasury security. It's money-like, it increases your purchasing power, um, but at the end of the day, there is some duration risk. It's not completely money-like, let's say, especially if, if say, we were talking about a uh, 10-year or third-year bond. There's some interest rate risk there, and it's not perfectly liquid. Now, when the, when the U.S. government is financing itself with, say, bills, that's much more money-like, so that impact, I think, is the strongest. Uh, the key here is the the, the the government's liabilities, just how money-like are they? The more money-like they are, I think the bigger the impact on financial assets. And so in that context, if it's done through QE or if it's done through bank um, bank purchasing, I, I think that's, that's, that's the most strongest impact because when the Fed is doing this, uh, then, they're, then basically the, the liability is transformed into a reserve, or if the bank is doing this, liability is transferred at the end of the day into a bank deposit, and all these have no interest rate risk and are very liquid. So, uh, those would be the most, uh, the two ways of the three that you mentioned, Jack, and uh, very good expertise in plumbing is how this would work. Right now, as you suggest, uh, banks aren't really buying, so it's not doing QE, it's doing QT. So, right now, the, the biggest, um, the way that this is done is just really the government paying for goods and services by printing treasury securities, some of which have high levels of duration. And so in that context, it's not as powerful as it would be if the Fed was buying or if the, if the uh, commercial banks were buying. Um, but I think it's still quite strong simply because the overall fiscal deficit is so large. Mm. And what would cause commercial banks to start, you know, their own money printers up by buying securities and and or how you know will the Federal Reserve not um, start to you know start printing money by quantitative easing, but it will stop burning money by reducing its balance sheet quantitative tightening. In other words, it will taper, as uh, Powell said said today. So over the past, if you look at a time series, let's say twenty years, commercial banks in the U.S. just haven't been very big investors in U.S. Treasury securities. Uh, in other countries, they're big buyers of uh, their. Uh, 
I guess, local sovereign bonds. But in the U.S., that, that really hasn't been the case. Uh, during the pandemic in 2020, 2021, they bought a lot, but that was largely uh, because they had increases in deposit liabilities. And what a bank, the way that a bank manages its interest rate risk is that when it has inflows of deposit liabilities, uh, it likes to buy longer dated assets to hedge the interest rate risk. And so you had a lot of that happening. Now, since quantitative tightening, the banks have not been having, uh, their deposits haven't been growing significantly. And so their appetite for treasury securities has declined a lot. And uh, you can see that they're, they're not really buying much anymore. They could, that could change if you have, say, another round of QE, or maybe you have changes in regulation uh, that would encourage them to buy more, more treasuries. And, and that's possible as well. But uh, at, at the moment, it doesn't seem to me that that's uh, going to be a major growth area for, for treasury uh, when you're looking for future demand for treasuries. Um, when it comes to quantitative tightening, again, there's a range of views as to when that will happen. Chair policies will start talking about it in March. Uh, my best guess is that who, the QT taper happens, uh, let's say, uh, fourth quarter of this year. Um, there was a possibility that it could have been sped up if Treasury decided to turbocharge its uh, net bill issuance. But it looks like it's going to increase its net bill issuance, its share of bills, um, more gradually going forward. So it doesn't look like they are uh, going to push on the, the turbocharged uh, bill issuance button to try to pull forward quantitative tightening. Going back to that example that you gave about this recycling of, uh, you know, you're the purchaser of a of a missile and jacks the arms dealer and i guess i'm the government um excuse how, me mike mike i am a co- military contractor i'm not an arms sorry you're a military you're, you're a military <laughs> contractor all right yeah that's what that's what they all say jack that's what they all say so um you, you know you mentioned something of shorter duration uh so like a bill you know being having more moneyness or being more money like than something that's longer duration and i'd just love to get a sense of why that is from your standpoint and again to get very like concrete and specific from the person who used to have $100, but now has $100 worth of treasuries, you know, is is the implication that I would, I could, you know, I could get ex- a credit extended to me, essentially, based on like some risk parameters. And because it's lower duration, it's less risky. So I could get more like one to one credit extended, or I know that's like a very specific question, but I'd just be be curious why you think of it that way. So I think of money as something that basically doesn't change in value. Let's say a $20 bill, it's a $20 bill, uh, no matter what happens, right? And I also think of money as something being very liquid. If I have a $20 bill, I can go and I can buy something at the store for it. Uh, they, will, they will accept it. Now, looking across the treasury universe, if you have a treasury bill, let's say something that matures within a year, then interest rates go up and down, but the market value of that asset doesn't change very much. So there's not a lot of interest rate sensitivity. And if you wanted to sell it, to monetize it, to go and um, buy dinner or something like that, uh, there's a really deep and liquid market. You can do that quite easily without uh, without any trouble. So that's really money-like. But there are degrees in this. So when you go further out the curve, let's say you have a 30-year treasury security. Well, if you look at a price chart of 30-year treasury securities, uh, you'll notice that they basically have equity-like movements. They're, they're kind of like Tesla stock almost. So they go up and down a lot in their market value. Um, so that's definitely not a stable value. So that that's hard to make that 
argument that it's going to be very money-like. And in addition, if you were to monetize a large amount, a large amount of it, uh, the market might not be as liquid as, say, Treasury bills. So in a sense, it becomes more asset-like and less money-like the further out you move along the the, um, the, the maturity of the ten. Uh, from about say bills to to thirty year, uh, further along the tenors. Now, one way to monetize uh, these treasury securities, one thing that makes it very money like, is being able to sell it in the cash market. And as you suggest, Mike, you could also borrow against it in the repo market. You can do one or the other, but the fact that these two markets, the cash market and the repo market, exist, is essential to making uh, treasury securities money like and having that impact that fiscal spending has deficit spending has on the real economy and financial assets from my perspective. Really interesting. Mm-hmm. So that, yeah, that's the uh, theory. It takes a lot more balance sheets and, you know, equity capital, like loss absorbing capital, basically to hold a stock, like to hold, you know, to, to hold a stock, than a 30 year bond and more to hold a 30 year bond than a 10 year note or 10 year note. That, so as it's shorter duration, okay. Uh, you know, it's pretty much basically just like, uh, uh, money. And in November, or actually in, in August of last year, I believe the treasury issued a lot more coupons than the market was expecting. Uh, and mm-hmm. that coincided with a renewed bear market in bonds that became especially you know, violent in, in October. Then in, I believe, November 1st, the treasury issued a lot fewer coupons. So fewer you know, laundration securities, they funded themselves by printing shorter term uh, uh, you know, bills and stuff. And that coincided with a you know, two year, you know, a bull market in stocks and and bonds uh and the bull market in stocks you know as reports still going on bonds maybe not so much uh what is um wh- how would you characterize uh the 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 qra the treasury's qra uh today uh you know it, was it more or less than than you expected you know i interviewed uh this very interesting guy john john Kamiski, who has his models that are, are way over my head but do you have a rough sense of if the the uh, you know bill and, and coupon issuance was or excuse me the spread between not not how much money the uh, the uh, tre- uh, treasury is borrowing but how much of it is going between bills and coupons that's a good question and, and you know John Kaminsky first rate analyst when it comes to these issuance things a uh, great discussion so I think today's QRA was uh, kind of boring and right on expectations so last so okay let's let's rewind a little bit so August. Uh, QRA comes in. So QRA is normally a very sleeping event. Nobody really cares about it. But then August, QRA, last August, a treasury is like, oh, so the deficit is really high. I'm going to have to increase coupon sizes by a lot. And I'm going to have to do this uh, for a few quarters. And it seems like the market didn't like hearing that. And you saw uh, the treasury market sell off a lot. And so since then, uh, the QRA has become kind of a focus for market participants. The more recent QRA in November, Treasuries came in and uh, instead of saying that we're just going to have a lot more increases, they're saying that we're just going to increase coupon sizes one more quarter. And so that seemed to make the market happy. And they also expressed a willingness to further increase uh, the bill share among debt issuers. So historically speaking, the Treasury has a, has a self-imposed policy where they want a 15 to 20 percent of marketable Treasuries to be comprised of Treasury bills. They expressed willingness to meaningfully deviate from that. So if you issue more of your debt and bills, which are more easily for the market to digest, uh, then that means there's less duration, less long-dated treasuries. And that that's uh, 
that makes the market happy since uh, there's less supply of uh, treasury securities in the long end, pushing interest rates up, prices down. So August coincided with a rally in the treasury market. Now, many people are focused on the QRA today, seeing what would happen. So the, the treasury, I think the, the positive part, I think, is that the treasury uh, did indeed increase coupon sizes this quarter and also said that they were set uh, for the next several quarters. So going forward, uh, based on what they're saying, they're not going to increase coupon sizes maybe uh, until next year, sometime next year. So I think that's that's pretty positive. Um, if you look at the deficit, you can clearly see that deficit is quite large. Uh, and so they're, they're saying that they're going to not increase coupon sizes anymore, and they're going to continue to let the balance uh, be absorbed by bills. Now, the balance, this is important because a part of the supply and demand dynamics of treasury supply going forward has to do with QT. So if QT uh, is going to be longer than expected, that just means the treasury is going to issue more bills. So in a sense, they continue to allow the share of bills to continue to increase above 20%, but in a more gradual pace. So yeah, in your most recent piece uh, on fedguy.com, Passing the Buck, you wrote that the Treasury has a lever it can pull to ease financial conditions and a strong motivation to pull it. So that that lever is issuing shorter dated money, Treasury bills, rather than than, than coupons, because it, it takes up uh, less balance sheet, it is uh, uh, less volatile. So it's fair to say they definitely pulled that in November. This time around, they kind of uh, pulled it, but they're they're issuing more coupons. Um, but they they said they might not do so uh, more so in the future, and this is also you know an interesting point that John brought up uh, in the, my previous forward guides interview that the, the deficit obviously was very high in 2023, but it was you know the stated number might not be as high as what 2024 will be because number one a lot of states literally were not paying their taxes they got like reprieved so the money didn't even come in until like January of this year, um, so that's when it's recorded. And the second big one is there was a bear market in stocks and you know pretty much all assets in 2022. So capital gains taxes were lower. That's you know a deposit and inflow for the treasury. We had a huge bull market in 2023. So capital gains taxes will probably be higher. Therefore, the treasury will have to print less money. So it will be a lower deficit. So secularly, you know, Joseph, you have the thesis of, of lower deficits, but th- there's a th- reason why you know in, over the next you know three to six months the issuance might be smaller, basically because uh, the Treasury has more taxes coming in. Well, that was also a point made today. The, the QRA said that uh, the fiscal deficit uh, was slightly smaller this quarter than expected, and so they won't have to issue as much. And like you mentioned, Jacko, uh, it's really difficult to forecast what the fiscal deficit would be because, for example, uh, capital gains tax, that's a big part. Um, well, if you have the stock market going up, then... You know, you're going to have more capital gains income tax. Your deficit is smaller. If the cap, if the stock market is not doing well, then you're going to have less uh, capital gains tax. So th- it's really difficult to predict what, what uh, the tax inflows will be. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue-chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old. They can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, 
you can use margin 10 for a 10% discount and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code margin 10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. I want to give a shout out to uh, Courtney Brown from Axios, who towards the end of the uh, Powell Presser asked about quantitative tightening. Joseph, you you said, uh, you know, that was one of your two most most interesting takeaways from from the press conference. And, you know, it was because of the great questions that she she asked. And uh, Powell's response to, you know, did you discuss the balance sheet uh, quantitative tightening? He said, you know, we're getting to that time where questions are starting to come into greater focus in terms of balance sheet runoff. We did have some discussion of balance sheet at the January meeting, so yesterday and today, and we plan on beginning in-depth discussions on the balance sheet in March. So, Joseph, in terms of a timeline, what does that uh, look like? Do, you know, would, if they have the you know in-depth discussions in March, does that mean that they you know will start in March or that they'll just discuss it in March and that it could be in May? What is sort of your outlook on when the Fed's quantitative tightening, which again is reduction of its of its balance sheet? will begin to taper and when they will begin to stop uh, uh, reducing their balance sheet altogether. What was your timeline before this meeting? What What is it now? And, and how did that change based on what uh, uh, Fed Chair Powell said? Yeah, that was a great question. I was I was surprised we had to go through such a long time in the press conference until someone asked that very important question. Um, so this meeting actually so doesn't change my view of the QT taper. Uh, would start, but I think that it changes the market's expectation simply because I, I think my sense from this is that if you start because discussing in, in March, you're probably not going to be implementing it right away. Uh, maybe you will implement sometime later. So I think this kind of moves back uh, the market's belief in when taper will start. My, my own view is that we don't start until quarter four of this year, and I feel more comfortable with that view after seeing what happened with the QRA today. As I as we just discussed, the QRA had the option of turbocharging bill issuance. They did not do that. It looks like they're going to let bill share creep up gradually over the coming months. And that tells me that um, one, uh, RRP levels, the RRP levels are, are going to stay elevated for an extended period of time, simply because a big driver of the decline in the RRP has been net bill issuance, but that's that's going to be more gradual. And secondly, Net bill issuance also puts upward pressure on money market interest rates. Now, the Fed, they're trying to shrink their balance sheet, but they don't want to shrink it too much. One of the indicators they look at to know whether or not they're getting too close to, uh, to comfort is when money market interest rates like repo rates increase. But repo rates are also impacted by bill yields because they are competing instruments. Now, if you have a more subdued growth in net bill issuance, then that also means that money market rates uh, will not have to increase as quickly as the other ways could. So that that I think that makes sense for for Tabor to start sometime in the uh, fourth quarter of this year. Mm. And what does if a, a tapering uh, of quantitative tightening starting in Q4 of this year? What would that look like in terms of the timeline of when the Federal Reserve's balance sheet would go truly neutral and it would stop reducing at all? Oh, that's really hard to say. I think they're going to have to play it by ear, but I think we, what they would do is that, well, there's a couple of paths I think that's, that could happen. We can get to the taper sometime later in this year, uh, reduce the pace of runoffs, and then just for them to just kind of see how, how things go. Um, if, for example, so one thing that I've noticed is that they're trying to, they're trying to figure out 
how to make all the banks be more comfortable using the discount window. Now, this is important uh, because the big fear of the Fed is just doing overdoing quantitative tightening and shrinking their balance sheet so much that one bank somewhere among the thousands of banks that we see has trouble getting liquidity. And so they don't want that to happen because if a bank gets caught shorting liquidity, maybe they go and they bid up money market rates or something like that. So one way to not have to worry about this is to make everyone comfortable borrowing from the discount window. That way, if a bank, for whatever reason, ever feels short of reserves, they can just go and borrow from the Fed. Um, if banks are all comfortable doing this, then there's really not much of a risk of overdoing QT because the worst thing that would happen is that you would have slightly more increase in discount window borrowing. So if they can successfully do that, and I don't know if they can, uh, then you could really have a tapered QT go on for, for a really long period of time. Uh, but and there's a lot of things happening right now that they're trying to prepare, uh, they're, they're trying to put into place to have a smooth, smooth QT. And in addition to that, we also have a standing repo facility, which we didn't have the last time. So I think it's going to be a smooth process, and I think it can go on longer than, uh, than many anticipate. And Joseph, how is the Federal Reserve, other than by forcing them, how is the Federal Reserve going to get banks to, who don't need the discount window to use the discount window? Because let, you know, let's say, jo Joseph, you're running JP Morgan, your cost of overall funds, you know, including all the non-interest bearing deposits and you know, all of the you know, savings accounts that earned one basis point, your non cost, of non -interest, cost of deposits liabilities is 2%, you're, you know, getting 6%, 7%, so your net interest margins are 4%. Uh, how, if you're you know paying two percent for all of your money on an average basis, how would the Fed? How why would you ever pay five point five percent, which is the current discount rate, also known as primary credit? Um, you know, I mean, Chris Whalen made a pretty impassioned case recently on, on my show for why that just is is a uneconomic for banks whose cost of funds is lower than the discount rate, which is most banks that are not in a crisis, and b it's a sign of weakness. Uh, that you know now everyone starts to say, hey, you know Joseph's bank, it's it's far from the <laughs> discount window. Um, so I guess I guess you know B gets resolved if everyone borrows from it, which is the Federal Reserve's goal. But how do you get everyone to borrow from it if it's at a non-economic rate? I would push back against non-economic rate. I mean, when you borrow from the discount window, maybe it's for a couple of days, maybe it's for a week. Uh, it's not like you're funding your entire loan book off that. So it's just something that you use temporarily, maybe to manage your outflows. And if the Fed really wants to, if the Fed is really serious in making the discount window more accessible, they could just change that primary credit rate and maybe they will. So I, I'm not really worried about that. And the Fed has been trying to do, make the discount window more uh, destigmatized for some time with not too much success. I remember in 2020, they made all the US GSIPs, big banks, borrow from the discount window and then go on Bloomberg and say that borrowing from the discount window is a great idea. They try to make sure that, hey guys, we can all do this. Um, I, I don't think it worked, but now they're trying to make sure that everyone does it once a year. Maybe that, maybe that's different. I don't know. I think the most effective way they can they can do this is just to make it more economical. You know, look at the BTFP, right? They they're they're, they're paying banks to borrow, and suddenly they have a lot of interest. So uh, you can toggle the interest rate to make it more attractive if you're really serious on making the discount window more accessible. Mm. And and that would kind of alter the rate complex because i remember i asked you why doesn't the federal reserve just lower the reverse repo rate and the repo rate to you know below the fed funds rate and the answer was the fed funds rate 
is kind of a shadow of what it once was. All the action is in the reverse repo and the, the repo markets. That's how the Federal Reserve controls rates. So there's no way the Fed could lower the reverse repo rate to 4% without lowering interest rates to 4%. Is that less true about the discount window? Because it's- No, I think so. Because the reverse repo facility is the floor and everything is traded off a spread of it. The repo, reverse repo facility is basically what holds the entire short rates universe uh, where it is. So if you adjust it, you move the entire universe discount window, the primary credit rate sits above the RP rate. And so you could, I, I don't, I don't think of it as, as uh, impacting relative rates. Hey everyone, we'll be back to the program in just a moment. But before we return, wanted to let you know about Das London. Das London is the largest institutionally focused conference in crypto hosted by Blockworks. But I want to give you an update because we are now 10 times oversubscribed for this conference. So the bad news is we have actually got to lower, as much as I love you guys, the listeners, we've got to lower our discount rate to margin 10. That's going to get you 10% off. I would highly recommend that you do that soon because you might have noticed ticket prices have gone up 200 pounds and they're only going up from here. And I actually can't guarantee that we're going to have this discount rate forever. Since we last talked, we've had a whole bunch of new great speakers sign up for the conference. We've got Brad Garlinghouse as a keynote. We've got Pascal Gauthier as a keynote. We've got new speakers signed on from Goldman Sachs from Franklin Templeton, uh, from some of the largest family offices and allocators based out of the Europe. So Theta Capital Management, L1 Digital. And actually on day one of the conference, we're going to be having an investor day, which is a Chatham House Rules hosted by some of the largest investors in crypto. Then the other thing that happened is we've got our VIP tickets that just went live. There are only 60. But we've actually had a bunch of them that just sold out even in one day. So if you want to be a VIP at the conference, make sure you get your ticket. And again, use code MARGIN10 uh, to hang out with me and Mark, uh, March 18th to the 20th in sunny London. Cheers. Maybe just as we start to sort of begin to wind down here, Joseph, I would love to get your thought for, for listeners who haven't maybe caught some of your weekly market segments. You know, you came into this year, and I think this, this FOMC as well, uh, yeah, very bullish. And you've mentioned that you think it's going to be a bull market for stocks and mid bonds do slightly less well. Um, can can you give us, uh, I, I think you've given a, a price target in the past for this. <laughs> I'll, I'll ask, ask that for you again. I mean, does that remain the, the same or does today change that at all in any sort of meaningful way? Um, and yeah, I, I would love to just maybe like get your sort of opinion on where we end uh, stocks near the end of this year. And I know you've also talked about the Magnificent Seven. We've got earnings that are coming out uh, very soon. And I know you don't ha- necessarily have any, you're not like a follower of these individual uh, stocks or earnings reports or anything like that. But I would love to get your sort of thoughts on the composition of the stock market as well. Uh, so in, in early December, I wrote a piece called Crash Up because I think that we would have significant upside risk to equity markets. And we've been doing very well since then. I continue to believe that there's substantial upside risk to equity markets. Um, the reason being, of course, you just have tremendous deficit spending and you have a Fed that is embarking upon a rate cutting cycle. Now, Chair Powell uh, is trying to do the best that he can to uh, to uh, delay that. But, um, you know, it's coming and whether it's coming in March or if it starts in May, I don't really think it makes that big of a difference. The biggest driver, of course, is fiscal spending, and that's only going up. Um, it requires a significant amount of change in the culture and, and the political system for that to stop. And right now, I think we're not close to that. Um, from what I hear, uh, there are uh, tax cut deals uh, being discussed. So, you know, that's not going to help. And of course, we have, um, uh, well, people are, you know, 
getting forgiven for their student loans and so forth. That that's just where the culture is. So I think that that's going to continue to put upward pressure on both uh, nominal growth and also um, asset prices. Now the composition, as you readily note, Mike, many people remarked upon this as being a very narrow rally. It's the max seven dragging everything up. Uh, I, my sense, and I'm not an expert in this, but from what I hear from people, that's really just a function of uh, the dispersion trade. And that is to say that because the indexes are pinned, then uh, volatility manifests itself in the underlying components, uh, specifically the max seven. So I think of that seems seemingly driven more by technical aspects of how of how these uh, volatility trades are being put on rather than anything rather than anything else uh, but someone else would be able to comment more more on that yeah i am uh, also not an expert and definitely more of not an expert th than joseph but i i would say there also is a fundamental aspect of this uh in in other words like a lot of the comp so people are saying it's not a bull market because okay the s&p 500 is at all-time highs you know nvidia is a <laughs> 600% year over year, whatever. But the Russell 2000 is not, uh, is, is quite weak. And, you know, Russell 2000 is well below all time highs. I would, so it's not, hence it's not a bull market. I would say, yes, it's true that in recovery phases, especially coming out of a recession, coming out of a bear market, uh, you know, in times of max ebullience and, and uh, speculation, often small caps, you know, lead. But I would say that, you know, this time around, there's so many junky companies that went public in, in 2020 and 2021 that had no reason to be there that, and, you know, all the companies that were good uh, were, you know, were graduated into the S&P 500 or a lot of them, I should say. And so the S&P, you know, the Russell 2000 small caps is just, it's a lot of companies who, you know, weren't good enough to get into the S&P 500. Um, and obviously there are, there are wonderful small cap companies, but I say as an asset class, like you have to be aware of that structural thing. And, you know, likewise, the reason that Apple's at $3 trillion, it doesn't only have to do with passive investment. You know, it also has to do with like it grows its earnings a lot more than the mediocre companies who are you know not in the mega cap seven. So I'd say there is a fundamental point. And I think a lot of people talk about structural factors that are you know very wise to point out to. But also it's like, yeah, you know, Microsoft can grow its earnings at 20% when it's you know such a large company. And a lot of other companies are not as as, as high, high quality. So I would I would say that. Yeah, they, they, those companies, the Max Seven, they, they're good companies, like you mentioned, Jack. And globally, you know what makes the U.S. stock market unique is that we have these awesome big tech companies uh, that no one really has to the to nearly the same extent, right? So, uh, if you are an investor abroad and you want exposure to technology, you have to come here. Yeah, I would also note on the Magnificent Seven, one of the things that makes them relatively unique is they've got. I mean, depends on the company, maybe slightly less so for Tesla, but they tend to have fantastic profit margins. They're extremely large, but they're also the top line growth year over year is very high for companies of that size. So maybe not Apple, I, maybe Apple, it's actually more of a, they've been shifting their revenue mix recently, but I think that's one of the things that makes these large companies super unique. And, you know, to your point, Jack, there are fundamentals that underlie this. You can look at the numbers. It's not it's not wildly out of the range of, of possibility here. So I add that as well. If you're sort of pointing out the Russell 2000 and saying we're not in the bull market, I mean, I would I would I would suggest the possibility that you're moving the goalposts there a little bit because, you know, it's not like everyone looks to the Russell 2000 at any other given point and uses that to determine if we're in a bull or bear market. So no, anyway, exactly. sorry, Jack. My stock, the stock market from, from most perspective is the S&P 500 or the NASDAQ or, or maybe the Dow. But uh, I think when you're talking about people accessing the equity market, most people don't really think about the Russell 2000. 
Yes, and I say, uh, uh, Mike, in crypto, for example, I think it would be even more uh, uh, you get a flawed thing. If you were only to look at the, the cryptos that are the largest market cap from 1001 to 3000, it's like, yeah, a lot of those are projects that no one's worked on since 2016, you know? So that's, you know, it's, it's even more uh, extreme uh, uh, in crypto. Someone should do an analysis at some point. It would be a fun thing to look at of the number of zombie crypto protocols versus the number of quote unquote zombie companies. I think that would be, I don't know how many people would be interested in that particular analysis. I would be extremely interested in that analysis. So there are any enterprising analysts out there who want to run a pretty unique study. I think that would be, I would be interested in the results of that. So, so would I, and I say a big distinction is crypto uh, projects are not really delisted, right? Cause there's no, um, you know, the, the exchanges are a lot, a lot of the same people who are the brokerage. So it's not like it's, you know, right. So if, if, if a company basically goes bankrupt and is a 10 cent stock, NASDAQ, they're going to call from the NASDAQ and say, hey, like you're over, you're done. And there'll be a, a pink sheet stock. Whereas in crypto, that doesn't really happen. I don't think I want to say so, uh, Joseph, I'm, go- you know, we've got our digital asset summits from March 18th to the 20th uh, in, in London. So if people haven't got their ticket, uh, they've got to, you know, Mike, you can, you know, uh, tell us about that just in a little bit, but you know, I'm, uh, Joseph, you're on the macro panel, uh, hosted by me and Michael Howell and Julian Brigden and probably someone else who's also extremely high quality, but I don't want to, uh, uh, say their name, you know, um, but, uh, so Joseph, that I believe it's on March 19th. Uh, that, that's when our panel is going to be. So the second day of the digital asset summit, that is the first day that the Federal Reserve is going to be meeting for, you know, that's going to be the Tuesday. And then the day after that, the 20th is going to be the Powell press conference. So when we're on that panel, Joseph, which people, you know, they've, they've got to check out, they got to get, they got to be there. Uh, what, what are we going to be talking about then as, you know, do you, do you think that there will have been fed speakers uh, coming out who will have definitely, you know, changed the, the dialogue and the narrative because very close to the end today, uh, so journalists asked about like, what are you going to, what are you going to say when you cut rates? And I'm um, sorry, I can't find it. Basically, Powell said uh, something to the effect of like, we're not going to be quiet about it, you know, that you'll have to basically look at for guidance. So I think it's going to be a fantastic panel. I look forward to the conference, uh, Julian and, and Michael Howell. I think we're going to be able to do a, like a real, real, really discuss in real time what, what's happening with the Fed meeting. So what I'm looking for is two things. One, of course, is finally get more details of what quantitative tightening tapering will look like, which our power already promised us. They're going to have a big discussion next March. So I think it's going to be uh, something to focus on. The second thing I'm going to focus on is the dot plot. Fed penciled in three cuts this year, but inflation has been uh, coming in, coming down faster than expected. So I want to see how many more cuts do we get this year. So I think March is going to be a big meeting. And so it's going to be an exciting discussion. It's going to be hot off the press. Yeah, and Mike, just tell us a little bit about the other panels, the the crypto the, at the at DAS for people. Just, I'll I'll give you the the high level is you know the there's a couple of different scenes and ways to understand crypto, and there's kind of what you the m- most people might think of it is like kind of blue haired uh, nerds, you know, coding up weird stuff out of their basement. But there's actually a very large institutional scenes. There are there's a lot of very sophisticated firms building market structure for. Um, you know, hedge funds or eventually pension funds or whatever to allocate. So it's very much uh, if you want to understand crypto from the perspective of, you know, kind of your traditional hedge fund manager or a bank and you're into kind of the technology and improvements in market structure, then this is this is the conference for you. And I, I will talk up this panel. I'm actually very personally pumped for 
this panel. You guys are kicking off day two when we save the best for first. So that's why you guys are <laughs> kicking the day off. It's going to be a blast. Um, but yeah, guys, this is going to be a ton of fun. Uh, Joseph, I can't wait to see you in person. I think it's going to be an absolute blast. Um, and I'm, I'm going to continuously just plug here. I think that, Joseph, you've been putting out these um, these Markets Weekly, I, I believe is the name, but they're like 20 mm -hmm. minutes. They're, it's just everything that you need to know uh, very concisely said. And obviously, you get the benefit bangers. of Joseph's they're, they're, uh, they're bangers. wisdom. Bangers. They're, and they're, they're on YouTube. They're free. Um, you know, the, the, the full experience, which I'm lucky enough to have it, you know, is on fedguy.com. That's where you go into the, the plumbing. There's central banking uh, 101. So, you know, if you haven't read that, I mean, come on. Joseph, I do. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Joseph, I do have to ask you. So a, a, you, not a small bank today, New York Community Bank uh, was down 40% uh, in, in the pre-market because they took some losses and they had to build capital and they cut their dividend. This is the bank that acquired the assets from failed Signature Bank, which you know, failed the weekend uh, of that Silicon Valley bank failed uh, in, in, in March of last year. Absent, this is, I'm going, you know, putting my tinfoil hat on. Uh, there was a line absent from both Powell's statement as well as the, you know, Powell's press release as well as the statement that the banking system is, um, is 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 safe and and sound do you think that that was taken out because it's it's like hmm maybe this is a bad look to take out the day this the you know the day that this bank has some issues even though it, you know, it doesn't mean that the banking system isn't sound it's just a pr thing you know yeah it, it obviously was a I, I'm sure they wish that the New York Community Bank would have had their earnings on another day. So, <laughs> <laughs> but um, let's be clear now: this is a New York bank. This bank is something that most people have never heard of, and I, I wouldn't read too much into it. So, like you mentioned, Jack, they, they do have seem to have more losses than expected. Um, one other thing to note is that um, the regulators raised their capital requirements. Uh, simply because they swallowed up some of uh, the signature bank's deposits. Now, when you raise capital requirements, you have to, uh, in your business, you have to um, save more money. Uh, you, you, some of that comes from returned earnings. That means that you have less money to distribute to your shareholders, and so you cut your dividend. And a big reason why this bank uh, did not do well today is because they significantly cut its dividend. And a big reason why it had to cut its dividend is because the regulators are forcing it to hold more capital. So um, there, there's some, uh, some of this is, is you know, not entirely uh, New York Community Bank's fault. Yes, and they also, they announced this capital raise by lowering the dividend at the same time that they announced that two loans, one office related, one multifamily apartment building related, both commercial real estate loans, uh, they had taken some impairments on. And so the market kind of thought like they're cutting the dividend because of the credit losses. What, whereas what they said on the call was that the, you know, we're cutting the dividend because of the capital thing. And we also have this credit thing that's not good, but they're not necessarily related, even though they're on the same call. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. Joseph, it's a pleasure to have you on here as always. I, I also, um, just to, you know, continue to say nice things. It's, it's also nice to see, you know, you kind of change your mind uh, to go both bullish and bearish. I, I do feel like sometimes people skew a little bit bearish and, and pessimistic. And um, yeah, it's good to hear you take a very quantitative uh, and sort of non-biased approach to markets. And yeah, really appreciate you kind of coming on and sharing your thoughts about the FOMC today. It was a blast. Yeah, I just, Mike, I wanted to say something about that is, sorry, but uh, there I see a few people on Twitter right, who have been bullish and have been right to been bullish and are dunking on 
bears, which is fine. I mean, you know, if, if you're wrong, you should admit, admit you're wrong. I've been wrong tons of tons of times, you know, if, and if you're right, you, you earn the right to, you know, pound your chest a little bit, although it may be bad luck, who knows, but uh, it's, they've, they've said that, why are people obsessing about the reverse repo facility, quantitative easing, quantitative tightening? They were just so bearish. It's like, well, my two sources who I rely on the most for market plumbing, Joseph Wang and Michael Howell, have been bullish on stocks for well over a year. So I don't know what they're looking at, but in terms of my thing, the plum, the, the plumbers I follow, they've, they've guided me well. So, and they've guided you know four guidance listeners well. So I see what when people say that, I see what, what their point. You know, a lot of people who they go on Fred.com about declining Fed balance sheet, quantitative tightening. There's going to be a bear market. I understand that there are those uh, you know uh, pessimistic takes that that tend to be quite common. But um, you know, not all market plumbers are always bearish. That's all I would say. Absolutely. But, you know, doomer, doomers are going to doom. So what can you do? Yep. We'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, thanks, Joseph. And uh, thanks for letting me tag along, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash hodlfg to learn more about the Vanek Bitcoin Trust, ticker HODL. Thanks again. Until next time.